Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el and we're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, and we're streaming at WCEV1450.com if you have not already done so. Make sure you are following us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And also, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, TuneIn, uh, just to name a few of the platforms. And you'll find us at that same username, at Radio Islam USA. Uh, Radio Islam family, for those of you who are in the Chicagoland area, this past weekend, Sound Vision sponsored the Save the Uyghur Benefit Dinner, where almost $200,000 was raised for the Save Uyghur campaign. You can get more info about that campaign at saveuyghur.org. That's save, U-I-G-H-U-R.org. Now, one of the featured speakers and awardees at the dinner was Uyghur activist Aidan Anwar, who gave an abridged presentation on the plight of the Uyghur people in China, which opened a lot of eyes in the room. And we are happy to have her joining us in studio. Welcome to Radio Islam. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. So um, you gave a, a presentation uh, this past Saturday. What were some of the things that maybe that you didn't get to convey uh, that you could tell those who are in attendance or those who maybe who were not in attendance uh, what, what they need to know about the humanitarian crisis that's going on right now? So my main goal was to... Um, first touch on, you know, I mean, obviously the main, the main goal is to touch on the current situation in occupied East Turkestan, um, and talk about the ways that China is currently cracking down on the Uyghur, uh, and Turkic populations living there, specifically with the focus on the concentration camps. And, um, I wanted to also touch briefly on the history so that part is not completely overlooked and forgotten because I want people to also realize that this, the Uyghurs and other Turkey people living there have, you know, centuries of history. Um, we've lived with, um, independence before we've have, uh, you know, been the center of, um, very prominent civilizations and been, you know, key points of like the Silk Road and, um, particularly within the Islamic community, like a lot of our scholars and a lot of uh, history was uh, kind of brought out through these, through a lot of these major towns and major um, hubs of culture and history. So I wanted to briefly touch on that. Um, and then later on, I wanted to get into the depth of how, and to show like how horrific this whole situation is. Because I think when we see what's happening or when we read about this stuff on in the media it's one thing it's another thing when we kind of get accounts of real people who've lived there who've, who've talked about you know their situation in a concentration camp or in a prison or what they've seen on the streets or what they've how they feel when they go out on the street and there's mass surveillance states um you know this technology that's surveilling them so i wanted to touch a lot on like personal stories in my presentation mm-hmm. um alhamdulillah i think I, I i didn't get to touch on it too much because also we had one of the concentration camp survivors at the event Mihrigal Tursun who was able to give testimony on her experiences so I just I let her I wanted her to give her story and I, I decided to focus more on like the facts and to really just shed light on like how extensive this oppression is and, and the fact that this oppression has been ongoing so mm-hmm. it's not a new thing it's not a the concentration camp isn't a complete new thing it's you know it's it's been a it's kind of like this symbol of what has come to right at this point because this oppression is part of an ongoing occupation and now the concentration camps is now an open sign of trying to eradicate 
the Uyghurs, um, both physically and culturally. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Let me ask a really superficial question. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not superficial uh, because they say that uh, generally the, the, the most beautiful sound to anyone is the sound of their own name. Yeah. So when we when I hear I hear these different pronunciations and I know a lot of them a lot of them I think are anglicized <laughs> to a degree. Yeah. Um, Uyghur. Yeah. Uh, but I hear when I hear you say it and I hear other I hear Uyghur. Yeah. Is that, is Uyghur. that the correct? Uyghur. Yeah, so it's like there's like a ra, there's like a ra sound. The, uh-huh. It's like a G, it's spelled U Y G H U R. So the G H makes a ra noise. Yeah. I think that when you try to do oi and then G H sound together, it makes it really hard for people to say. Yeah. So I, I suggest people if they can't say that, then at least say like Uyghur, and it's a little bit closer. Uyghur sounds like a little bit. It's a really <laughs> off, and yeah. I think it's a pronunciation that was actually introduced by by by, by Chinese by the Chinese. So and then everyone else kind of just picked up on it, and like that's how everyone you know is pronouncing it now mm-hmm. um honestly a lot of us kind of cringe when you hear the, the pronunciation Uyghur but we're not going to be too pressed on making that an issue too much of an issue um but yeah the, I would when I pronounce it it's Uyghur. Uyghur um but one thing I would like to mention is that actually that term the term Uyghur is actually a relatively new term that was employed like um it was uh, brought about in the 1900s but before that Uyghurs actually referred to themselves as Musliman or Turkey uh, mm. Or like like Turk basically, right. um, so that's how people were known as. Um, and then with time, you think there was more like with it with the creation of the term Uyghur that was um, kind of differentiating the different um, Turkic ethnic groups within East Turkestan. Um, so you know Uyghur is not hasn't been a term that has been used like throughout history. Okay. So it's, it's a relatively new, yeah. newer term. But yeah, but in terms of pronunciation, it is like Uyghur. But okay. yeah. Well, I think that's important, and that's <laughs> yeah. what I say. I don't want. To, I don't. It's not superficial at all. Um, no, it's an important question. Yeah. 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 So, um, as as a as a younger activist, uh, and I don't generally like to look at age necessarily, yeah. but I think uh, sometimes it has its merits, um, just in terms of the, the differences in communication. Mm-hmm. Um, we're having a conversation offline. We're listening to some uh, comments uh, from. Uh, Brother Abdul Malik, and he was talking about how uh, once the older folks came on the Facebook, all the younger people, you know, left. <laughs> but yeah. um, but seeing as how social media has a such a uh, such a power in being able to uh, disseminate information and, and organize folks, um, as a as a younger activist, how have you employed the, the you know these communication uh, platforms? Uh, to you know to get the to get the word out and, yeah. and, and inform people yeah so in the beginning my social media um, was just like any other any other person's social media where you kind of just posted like my Twitter was like I posted my thoughts and you know it was kind of like one of those I don't want to say pointless Twitter pages but you know like <laughs> but you just kind of like use Twitter as like a way to just like retweet funny things and stuff like that or Facebook was also kind of the same thing where well not really I wasn't really active on Facebook too um, my Instagram, I, I keep I usually keep private for more because I, I do want like a platform where I can post like my own photos and stuff. But in terms of my Facebook and Twitter, um, at one point, I, th- I don't know exactly when I started. I don't remember exactly when I started to make my platform solely on the Uyghur issue. But I th- it was definitely um, I started definitely making more of a thing um, like beginning of college because mm-hmm. that's when I was started to get more active in raising awareness about what was happening. And I realized like when we go on Facebook, 
first of all, like not many, well, in general, not many people have been knowing about what's been happening to the yeah. Uyghur people, even before the concentration camps have co- been coming about. And that was, the concentration camps is, you know, um, was it started being extensively built in t- 2016. So that's like uh, a little less than three years ago, right. right? And so, but before that, you know, we we still we still had economic, I mean, sorry, a systematic uh, oppression and and you know, been undergoing occupation and having clear forms of genocide taking place within, like whether it be in open or in secret in the prisons. So um, that's what. And then I think uh, with time, I started being more active with like going to protests, posting these protests. Like posting live, like sorry, live broadcasts of the protests, giving speeches, um, writing a few op-eds and just sharing it. And then with time, I there started to get more following, like more followers. And so I was like, okay, I think I'm gonna start like shifting. It naturally, I didn't really make the conscious decision to shift it to that kind of platform, but it just naturally became that way. So my Twitter also like all I cared about that moment was just sharing, like news and sharing things what was happening. And um, I think with time, especially like with a couple of things that I've like if for an op-ed for example if I shared that like I would get more followers um, because people would be reading these headlines and being like whoa like I've never heard of this before right yeah. um, so I think in August 2017 I published an op-ed with TRT World about why Uyghurs are not allowed to embark on hedge right because it was um, there was the hedge season was coming up and I wanted to shed light on the fact that like we talk about millions of Uyghurs I mean sorry millions of Muslims are going on this pilgrimage but there's like one particular population that's completely barred from going on something like this right mm-hmm. so I wrote the subhead and i remember getting a lot of followers from then um the most recent one was like the now this video that got really viral That's and that like millions yeah so um yeah i estimate there's like around 70 million views worldwide so yeah. throughout different platforms like facebook twitter uh youtube instagram uh whatsapp even i can't really tell how many views on whatsapp but i heard like yeah. you know a lot of people downloaded and shared it with their groups um, let me ask this how how did that come about uh, so the now this video, um, I, I actually have, um, I had a connection with someone I know, uh, her name is Isra Chakr, um, and she's a, a Syrian-American civil rights activist based in D.C., and she posted on her Instagram story saying, like, does anyone know um, someone who can speak on, the China, on China's camps? And a lot of my friends, and I had one particular connection in L.A., who, subhanAllah, like, you know how with the small world, like, connections really make a big difference, you know, texted my name to her, and a lot of people were also saying my name, and then she reached out to me saying, I have a really big media opportunity, you know, I'm going to connect you with someone at Now This, and they're going to reach out to you, and um, so you can, uh, I guess, share the story. So um, I went in October. Um, it took some time for the video to be produced. It took around two months, but... Um, yeah, that, that's how it happened. So it, you know, mm. yeah, they called me over and then I, I had no idea that it would get this viral. Like, I was like, I looked at now this and I was like, wow, it's a really big platform. Like their average, their videos get like at least a million views. I was like, okay, maybe at least a million views. But even that is like huge within the Uyghur community. Like we've never had, I don't think we've had ever had like a single video that has gotten even like over more than a million views, to be honest. So when I started to, when that video was released and I started to see like within the first day, there was like, I don't remember exactly how many were the first day, but I remember seeing three million within the first like three days. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, like this is really gaining traction. And then more, and then I started to see public figures sharing it. Even activists like Linda Sarsour, who like even mentioned herself, like, like how horrific is this? Like, so basically she's also, you know, showing that she also didn't really know much about it. And I don't, we don't blame anyone, right? This is just something that's been hidden. Yeah. Um, by the Chinese media and um, China's making really, really string, like stringent efforts to really just 
block off everything about what is happening to us. Um, and then I remember seeing like these tweets where someone, people would re quote retweet the now this video and then they would share it. So I remember seeing one tweet that got like 126,000 retweets. And so just with time, it got more and more viral, alhamdulillah. Um, alhamdulillah. Yeah, and then and I heard it also got translated into different languages, which is oh, really? also, yeah, because people were like, this, this needs to reach different international platforms. Um, and so I saw videos that were translated into um, Turkish, it was translated to Urdu, Arabic, um, Malay, um, amongst other languages as well. So, Are there any other reasons that you think beyond the Chinese propaganda mm -hmm. uh, that folks, particularly in the United States, are, have been unaware? Um, yes. Yeah, so. I think the biggest one, so like when I think of this question, um, well, I think that the Uyghur like population itself, like so the ethnicity, like yes. even when I would introduce myself to other people and they're like, okay, what is your ethnicity? I and, okay. and, I, and oh, you were going to ask a question similar to that, or about that? No, just about, um, this, you know, when, it's, when it comes to, you know, phenotypical distinctions. Right, right. right people mm -hmm. being able to look at you and go, oh, yeah, you're from here. Yeah, you're not, you're, yeah. Like if you see Somalis. You, 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 you know, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of a, yeah, a general look. You exactly, go, exactly. You know. Yeah, so, yeah, so typically when they look at me, like, okay, I don't think I've ever had someone correctly guess, like, on the spot, like, you're Uyghur. Yeah. Um, but, like, when people have looked at me, they're like, oh, they would guess, like, okay, sometimes I get really crazy guesses, like, I'm <laughs> Egyptian or, like, Moroccan or, um, but, but then sometimes they'll say stuff like Afghan, so like Central Asia or like Central Asian. Sometimes they'll say Uzbek, which is very, very close. Yeah. Like it's pretty much like the same thing, but like slightly different. But it, in a way, so they would get close, but they would never actually pinpoint the Uyghur ethnicity because a lot of times they haven't even heard of it. Right. Um, sometimes I would get Turkish because my name is like a, a name that's also used in Turkey, Aydin. Um, but like I do have like, I do have like eyes that are kind of look that kind of look asian so it's like they would get confused or be like wait are you they would, or they think i'll mix like half you know half asian half like white or something yeah or like half something else like half arab um so yeah um but what was i saying oh about nobody's really generally got oh yeah yeah. yeah so like even when i would say my ethnicity like people would just be like what like what's that and i would you know that's when i would start going on my five to ten minute rant about like just kind of giving a quick history lesson and kind of just describing like who we are, where we come from, um, and the fact that like I always I would always say like I'm, we're from East Turkestan. It's a nation under the occupation of China, and I always emphasize it's like under the occupation of China right. because a lot of people think we're like Chinese Muslims. Like that's con that's what we're commonly referred to. Like oh the Chinese Muslims are being oppressed. I'm like no, mm -hmm. like we reject that. You say, like we're not Chinese like our culture our linguist like our language everything about us are just it's not even remotely close to the to the Chinese culture but you could argue yeah yeah we're being forced to be Chinese by nationality because we're under occupation but still we reject that because we've been under occupation so that's one thing we want to emphasize to people is like to stop calling us Chinese Muslims because then it feeds, people then think like Hui Muslim like so right now Hui Muslims are also facing oppression by the Chinese government as well in the sense that like their mosques are being demolished they're also facing some religious restrictions but they're not being rounded up into uh, concentration, camps. concentration camps you know they're not they're not there isn't this a territorial issue that they're facing uh, this territorial dispute because they're not facing under occupation so a lot of times when we keep saying Chinese Muslims people are literally thinking like you know ethnic Han Muslims right. and that's not who we are so yeah. and it, and you know and it, it, it negates a 
the, that history of uh, of occupation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's a very exactly. passive exactly. type of uh, description. Yeah, so I mean, even people people even say like you know we'll call us an ethnic minority, mm-hmm. but even that is like considered offensive for us because. Like within our homeland, we've we, for the longest time we weren't ethnic minority. We were the majority in our own homeland, right? That's kind of like calling Palestinians an ethnic minority within Palestine. Mm. Like if you think about what that, what the, how that feels and how what that would mean, mm. right? Um, so we're not until until recently. I think recently now we're starting to slowly become an ethnic minority. I mean, an actual minority be, within our homeland because of uh, Han Chinese like mig- migration and the fact that literally people are being wiped off. Um, from this earth because they're being killed or tortured to death in these camps or prisons or just being or just simply disappearing mm-hmm. um, right now they have you know accounts of towns and villages that have been basically almost wiped out like you there it's eerily silent because there's no one and there's no one walking through the streets like where have all the people gone right so um, you know even calling us an ethnic minority like sometimes when you know um, there's like media campaigns or people trying to raise awareness they're like oh there's another minority in China like I, I try to tell people to avoid using that term because right. it kind of like feeds into the the kind of the colonial narratives like oh they're the ethnic minority within China like poor yeah. minorities you know but like no it's like we're a group of people that have been under occupation we've we're living under an occupation and um, by calling us 49 since no, yeah, 1949, most recently. Um, but, you know, so, and China will then say, like, these are one of our 56 recognized ethnic minorities. And, you know, then by calling us ethnic minority, it kind of is are acknowledging the fact that we are part of China, you know? Yeah. Like, yes. And then give some, some legitimacy to the hierarchy. Exactly, um, yeah, exactly. But what I also find really interesting here is that um, the inverse is not true to say that there are Muslims in China. Mm-hmm. But then to turn it around and say Chinese Muslims, yeah, you know, it, it's a very, you know, these are two mm-hmm. totally different yeah, uh, realities. Exactly. But, but, but I appreciate hearing you say that because um, I know I've been in conversations where we talk about trying to bring awareness to the issue and we go Chinese Muslims, mm-hmm. right? And, and, you know, alhamdulillah for the intent, but if we want to really do justice yeah. to bringing awareness, then we got to make sure that we're using the the right language exactly uh, and, and i would also like to you know point out that it's not just Uyghur muslims who are being subject to this oppression but it's also other turkic groups uh turkey ethnic groups living there as well and that's something i want to like you know i've been trying to a lot of us have been trying to change the narrative where it's like stop just calling Uyghurs because then we're excluding the Kazakhs, Kyrgyz, the the you know the uzbeks the um there's even like farsi speaking tajiks who live there who are also being subject to the mass surveillance state who are being rounded up into camps like it's not just us yes the majority of it are Uyghur people but there's also other Turkic people. So whenever I talk about this, I'm always I always make, try to make sure to say, you know, there are, um, you know, let's say like two to three million Uyghurs and other Turkic people in these concentration camps. And I, um, yes, there are a lot of the majority of them are Muslims, but there are some, like we we also sometimes would like to avoid constantly saying just Muslim. The fact that right. it's a Muslim issue because, like, there are like Uyghurs who are not. Uh, let's say religious per se, who would consider themselves not Muslim, who are also being sent to the camps, um, because this I would like to emphasize this is mainly an ethnicity issue, and that the fact that religion is being used as an excuse to cra- and to put us into these camps and say that we are, China is claiming that we are putting these people into camps to crack down on Islamic extremism. Because if this was purely a Muslim issue, mm-hmm. then we would also see Hui Muslims, 
like Chinese Muslims being mm. sent to the camps as well. But we don't see that. We see a very particular group from a very particular area of, of um, a, a very you know from from an occupied region being sent to the camp. So this is a territorial issue, an ethnicity issue, and religion is definitely part of it. But it's not the main reason. It's not like okay, they're Muslim, they're being sent to camps because if that was the case, we'd see all the Muslims in China undergoing the same. Is is ethnicity and religion? Are these the things? I mean, because we obviously realize that these things are being targeted. Right. But is it for the purpose of acquiring the natural resources mm-hmm. uh, of the uh, East Turkestan uh, region? You know, they're yeah. huge gas deposit, uh, natural gas uh, deposits, yeah. and, and and other resources yeah. there. Is that the the math that we're looking at yes, here? Yes, I would definitely say so because it's it's. Um, I touched touched on this in the presentation on Saturday, um, and I talked about how, you know, like, for example, 40% of China's coal comes from the East Turkestan region. It's really rich in natural resources, very rich in crude, in in coal, like I said, and other very uh, valuable materials. Um, They say that even, what is it? It's either one-fifth or one-sixth, I'm forgetting. But one fifth or one sixth of the world's ketchup comes from our region too, yeah. right? Like Heinz is a huge; it operates in East Turkestan. Um, but also, just the land itself is so is so vast. It's 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 around like two and a half the size of California, mm-hmm. and that kind of if you imagine that how big that is, like for for China's population, like with China's population exceeds over a billion people. Mm-hmm. So like that kind of space is so valuable for them, where they you know people can spread out. They that's why they incentivize a lot of people to migrate there, um, and so. So it's a vast region, and um, so I would say it's a largely a territorial issue. And also, the One Belt One Road initiative, um, that is a mul- that was a multi is a multi trillion dollar initiative uh, launched by the Chinese government in 2013 to essentially create like a, a modern day, they call it like a Silk Road uh, route, where basically you they would go through different parts of the world, like Central Asia, uh, Africa. Now they're starting to go to Europe um, and other uh, other parts of the world. Bas- but basically, they would, this would be a, con- a way to connect railroad railroads, gas line pipes, and resources to other parts of the world. And this is a way for China to um, essentially make make themselves a large economic power um, by making smaller governments. Um, you know, be part of this initiative and essentially, like China would basically offer these really big, great loan, like big, really huge loans to them yeah. um, with the assumption, saying that like it'll making it easy for them to pay it off of it, telling these governments that it's going to be good for their economy, that they're going to eventually, they're, that they're overall going to benefit from this great initiative. Um, and this is a way to promote, you know, economic ties with China. Um, so the East Turkestan region itself is, is a, a huge component of, of like a lot of the railroads a lot of this initiative goes through that region so without east Turkestan and what without the resources mm-hmm. a lot of this i would say a lot of this um a lot of this uh project would be really like not as strong um and by the way i want to make i forgot to make a quick disclaimer about the fact that east Turkestan, you people may have heard of it as xinjiang right. um, and that is the name that china has employed and has re- they renamed the land to Xinjiang, which actually means new territory. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we also avoid using the term Xinjiang because that it's that name itself 
implies like a colonial narrative we consider that offensive um and it, it's not it's not the true name and when by by calling it xinjiang i think a lot of people if they don't know the meaning of it they just think oh yeah we've always been a part of china it's just it's just a province of china and it's china the official name is actually the xinjiang uyghur autonomous region which in that name itself implies a lot of irony because number one you know right now there's China's making a very clear attempt to wipe out anything that makes up who the Uyghurs are, whether it be culturally, linguistically, religiously. Um, so it's not, they're wiping out everything that makes us distinctly Uyghur. Um, autonomous, uh, autonomy, that is not existing at all. Um, it's very clear with with what we see with the concentration camps, the mass surveillance state, the complete banning of religion. Um, there's essentially no freedom to the point where you're surveilled in your own home by like Han government civilians. Like, was this a part of your pres? I think it was a part of your of your presentation, mm-hmm. um, where it says that all of the um, Uyghur mm-hmm. have to download a uh, spyware or something like that. Yeah, on mobile phone. Yeah, yeah. So that's one thing that they would have to do is they would, uh, well, first they would like have their phones confiscated by officials, and then they come up with a more. Uh, it would be confiscated and then checked by the officials. Like they would literally go through your phone, check all your apps, check all your material to see if there's anything quote unquote suspicious or suggestive of like terrorist uh, inclinations. So if, let's say you have like a picture of like if you, you know how on like WhatsApp we get sent like a bunch of like thing. Let's say like a, there's a little girl making dua, right? Or like yeah. or on, on Eid we get like sent little things that say Eid Mubarak or or even like a Quran recitation that's on your phone or a lecture that you're listening to. Like they would basically scan your phone for anything like that. Even saying, finding a message that says, Assalamu alaikum, that is enough for you to be uh, subject to intense interrogations, detainment, and like sent to the concentration camp. So at first they would confiscate these phones. They still do, mm-hmm. but they came up with a more efficient way of basically uh, checking these phones, which is they would, they would require everyone to download an app on their phone that basically would... Uh, they would basically kind of screen through your phone to make sure to kind of see what materials on your phone so it would it would basically detect any quote-unquote again like material that is that seems slightly quote-unquote suspicious um or that is that is worthy of basically sending someone to a camp or prison and it doesn't take much at all no. from saying assalamualaikum in public no i um, mean well it's it's scary because like this is what this is you know our religion islam has been such an deeply embedded part of our Uyghur identity like even if someone doesn't consider themselves super religious right like it's just embedded in our in, in our culture like everyone still says assalamu alaikum everyone still says inshallah or khudayim bursa that's the Uyghur way of saying it or like um you know everyone a lot of our culture we still have nikahs we still have janazas we still have you know like i'm talking about for people who who may not be as practicing who do, mm. don't consider themselves as practicing like these are embedded parts of our culture like you know um like naturally in in big gatherings like there there might be like gender segregation like that's you know so like just stuff like that um or like drink no drinking no eating pork that's just embedded in our in our daily life um so by cracking down on like these small things like that's china's attempt of really wiping trying to wipe out the very essence of our identity Right. Um, and they know and it's it's also, you know, something I was thinking is like it also is a, a sign when China sees like religion as a threat or, or someone's identity or culture as a threat. That is a sign of its own insecurity, like yeah. like it's an insecure totalitarian state. Right. When they mm-hmm. when it's come to the point where you you find it a threat that someone is saying assalamu alaikum or someone's speaking their own mother tongue. Like, what does that say about the oppressor? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So 
I imagine, um, kind of going back to your statement earlier about, you know, uh, people come up to you and they're trying to guess what you are, <laughs> right, what your ethnicity is. Yeah. Um, and then they get the uh, Uyghur uh, 101 history, right, introduction. Uh, on the college campus, how have you seen that awareness or how have you seen, uh, what, what's been the impact of your presence on, uh, in, can we give a shout out to university? Yeah, Duke. <laughs> Duke basketball. <laughs> Zion. Yeah, can't wait to see him. Okay. Uh, but, um, but, but what has been the impact? Have you seen levels of awareness um, uh, raise? Okay, well, then within my particular campus, um, I would say that, so coming in as a freshman, like, I, I remember just, like, I would say my ethnicity to introduce myself to whoever, you know, whether it be my roommate, whether it be my like my fellow Muslim community, the MSA, or just my classmates. And honestly, people had no idea. Like, I don't know of anyone at the time. I think there was like one or two people who I know who like had heard about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were like saying, oh, like there were a couple of friends who had like added me on Facebook before they had met me, right? But then they would see my posts and that was their first exposure to the issue or to even hearing about our ethnicity. So when I came on campus, um, people started to see know me as like, like they would kind of not make fun of, but it was it would be a joke. Like Aiden's like basically her introduction when she introduces herself is, "Hi, my name is Aiden. Like I'm an Uyghur, but my family's from East Turkestan, which is a nation under the occupation of China." That was literally like my go-to phrase because mm. I was because like I knew first of all no one would know who Uyghur is whenever I say it, and then I would say East Turkestan, no one would know who that what that is. So then I would have to say it's an, a nation under the occupation of China. And then sometimes I'd maybe add a couple more sentences being like, we're currently undergoing a genocide or something like that, you know? But, you know, and so I realized that a lot of the awareness, um, well, based off of what my friends or other people have told me, is like, before we met you, we had no idea. And this is much like I've, we've uh, been more aware of the issue because of you constantly talking about it and you trying to make this an issue. So um, even on Duke, uh, just recently in late January, we... I was president of the MSA this past year, and oh, so I was like, sure. I'm going to use this time, to use this, you know, chance to use Duke's resources and their money to organize this event to raise awareness and break Duke's silence on this issue because Duke hasn't like really done a lot of like any event during my time at Duke to raise an issue of this plight. And Duke has a very strong relation with China because they actually have a campus operating in China called the Duke Kunshan University, right? And wow. this was a, re- a new written university that I believe was built in 2013. So I was like, okay, well, this makes sense as to why Duke is, you know, probably not saying anything. And they have a huge, you know, uh, international Chinese student population at Duke as well. Um, so it would be, and I'm, I'm the, also the only Uyghur on campus that I know of. Like I haven't met a single Uyghur on campus, both in undergrad school and graduate schools. So I was like, okay, I'm, a, I'm like, right now I'm like alone in this in this cause in the sense that like I don't have anyone else to work with if I want to make this an issue. So I was like, before I graduate, I really need to make sure that we have at least one event that really breaks the silence and, and ruffles some feathers because I was so tired of seeing, just going about campus and just seeing like, like we would have all these events going on on campus. Like uh, most people who are, if someone's listening to this and you're at university or you've gone to, you know how universities constantly have talks. And, and I was just like, why isn't anyone talking about this genocide like and especially with the construction of the camps i was like why isn't anyone talking about like concentration camps in the 21st century like literally there are freaking there are like people dying like and 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 it's it's being done by such a like a 
this huge power and no one's saying anything about it and duke has this relation with china like what is going on here and this i'm like if another holocaust happens and like we look back 10 years from now and we're like writing about the genocide of the Uyghurs and concentration camps i'm like yeah it's because we're it's all our, it's all on us we, it's because we did nothing mm-hmm. like we, you people are gonna be looking back and be like wow i was at this university who had such strong ties with this you know with this fascist state and we still chose not to do anything or we we were silent right mm-hmm. so um alhamdulillah we created this event and we it would it was a huge turnout um people were literally sitting on the floors i would say it was around over 200 people um, and we invited Mihrul Tursun, the concentration camp survivor. Mm-hmm. My dad also came. He's been, he's also kind of been one of the forefront leaders of like the independence movement. So he was considered seen as a more like quote unquote radical mm-hmm. uh, voices. And then he is the prime minister, prime minister in exile. Yes, of, of the East Turkestan government. government in exile. Yes. Okay. Um, and then we had one academic from the University of Washington, Darren Byler. But I wanted this event to be talking more about Uyghur voices because a lot of these events on universities, I realize it's just like, Yes, they invite scholars, but none of them are Uyghur, right? It's like, and it's just like a little bit, it's good, but it's also like, okay, where are the Uyghur voices? They keep saying they, 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 like it's an, you know, right. it's a, and I'm just like, there are Uyghur people here that could be giving their stories, sharing their narrative, right? Um, you know, with, are they being pushed to the, are they being pushed to the back? Or, academics or, or, no, no, or uh, like the, the, the Uyghurs. those voices, yeah, the, uh, Uyghur. I uh, wouldn't say they're necessarily being pushed back, but there's just like when it comes to like prioritizing who to invite for like college events, it's always like the people with the PhDs and uh, and like obviously rightfully so, like it makes sense, right? You need especially if you're going to speak in an academic setting, you want people who come from an academic background to be talking to students or talking to right. professors versus like a radical, or not, I don't want to say radical, I'm sorry, but people who deem these activists as radical speaking out of campus and trying to rally people to support the cause. Those are two completely different things. But I was like, people need to hear Uyghur voices because everyone keeps saying like, and also uh, not to, you know, put down any work of like non-Uyghur activists or I mean non-Uyghur scholars or whatever. But sometimes I always feel like there are certain narratives that are not being mentioned or like there, I, I was, I've sat down in multiple talks mm-hmm. um, or I've watched them online of, you know, other scholars um, who've speaking, spoken on the issue and mashallah, they, they, they do ground their, their talks and evidence and their research and have done great work. But sometimes I feel like there were certain things that I wish were, were more emphasized. For example, the fact that we're in occupied territory, like touching more on like the colonial history because it's usually just mentioned, like I would say very briefly, but, um, or, if, or calling us an ethnic minority, which obviously, but like technically, if you want to say, okay, China is technically part of a China now mm-hmm. then you technically we're an ethnic minority but like if you were giving it from the, the voice of an Uyghur we will openly reject and be like don't call us that or we would say don't call don't say Xinjiang but right. all these these scholars have to say Xinjiang because that's like one of the rules in academia you can't just like start you know uh, using statements that give off political state political so use words that give off political statements. So they would always always call it Xinjiang. They would never really call it East Turkestan. I don't want to, and I don't want to generalize. Obviously, I know I do know of some scholars who interchange the two names to give more voice and credit to that the East Turkestan name, for example. Um, or there's just yeah, there's just a couple. Of, and then I realize like people are more inclined to listen to. I think it's more powerful when people hear like stories, right? So if someone Absolutely. says, my mom and my dad is in a concentration camp, I have not heard their voice for two years now. And I live in everyday like psychological trauma and, and this fear that my mom and dad are like basically dead. Like that's a completely mm-hmm. different, you know, uh, feeling that you get versus like some like professor who just comes and is just like, oh yeah, the Uyghurs are like, uh, you know, people from Northwest China and they're, 
they're an ethnic minority being rounded up into re-education camps. I'm like, yes, that, that's, you know, that's important. But the, question, just, the question has to be asked, what is the purpose of the presentation? Exactly. Uh, you know, somebody's getting right. up and they're talking about what's going on, but they're talking about it from, um, from a standpoint of basically just giving information, mm-hmm. but not really giving that information with the purpose of... Um, and insight might not be the right, the best word, but mm. at least prodding people to action. Exactly. That's, right? I think that would be the main difference. And um, so like, yeah, exactly. So I, I would say a lot of the academics won't be, won't, they won't have, a, let's say they have a presentation, they won't have a side saying, okay, what can you do to help, right? Because it's not an activist presentation. It's more of like, here's information as an academic, as a scholar, what I'm going to present to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have to, and I, I've talked to a lot of these scholars, they, like a lot of them, like they can't openly call themselves an activist, even though a lot of their work has shifted towards that direction where they're now using their platforms as a way to raise awareness. Like that's a form of activism, for example, or they're, you know, supporting like Uyghur activists those are all low-key forms of activism but they're not they can't call themselves activists because they have to maintain their profession and by calling themselves activists they could also lose their credibility because activists unfortunately you know are seen as people who quote-unquote exaggerate things or are like or only like to see talk about the one side whereas academics or journalists people in those fields have to you know be more quote-unquote objective or uh just kind of pull themselves out of that's that, that that's a nice joke <laughs> um, the whole idea of not having any bias, but personally, my favorite my favorite scholars are scholar activists mm-hmm. um, because yeah. you know what is the point of of the research uh, of of giving the information if not to allow people to make better decisions. Um, but anyway, I get what you're yeah. saying 100%. Yeah, and so also another thing that I, I realize is a predicament that a lot of these uh, these academics or scholars face is, well, especially when it comes to China, is speaking up against uh, about this issue in the first place. Because if they speak up, they are probably subject to not being able to go to China again, especially if their career is, you know, if, if their research is based in China, like a lot of, they, they rely on trying to go back to the region and doing more research. Mm-hmm. So if they're not able to go, it's like, what are they going to do then, right? So... I know, you know, there. this is a big predicament that they face is like, should I speak up? Should I say anything? And then, you know, obviously our response is like, well, if you are silent, then you are, you know, somewhat complicit in this genocide. But if all academics were to really unite and, and speak up against this and be like, yo, this is like, we can't be complicit in this as a peop- just just so we can keep our job per se. This is, there's a moral issue here that and a moral and ethical issue here that's that's up that's at stake here mm-hmm. um and so there are a lot of people who still don't you know like for example i there was a, an event at duke where we had one of uh, a china scholar who who talked about china i'm using islam in china so in general islam in china mm-hmm. and we i was also on the panel and i talked about the Uyghur issue but it was being recorded and then we were asked can we can we broadcast this live broadcast this to duke kunchen university and the academic said no like because he was it's just too risky and it's just so it's just like what is you know what is the line that you draw here and um i understand for people who who have to you know like who feel the need to not broadcast themselves but like i feel like with silence like the whole reason why there there are so many Uyghurs, even Uyghurs, like even at the presentation on uh, even at the dinner on Saturday, mm-hmm. I I met some Uyghur people. Like one lady was telling me, like I was contemplating for multiple days on whether or not I should go to this because I was so scared. Like I was afraid that if I was my face was shown up shown up on social media, my family would face um, like 
repercussions, yeah. right? And then finally, her husband said, what do you have to be afraid of? At the end of the day, you should fear Allah, not fear people or fear government, right? And she was like, okay, I'm going to come. But like, even Uyghurs were deciding whether or not to go to a dinner, you know? And, and I was just like that fear has just pervaded so many people that to the point where like they just they can't even show up to protest they can't even like speak up and say one of my family members is missing or sent to a camp mm -hmm. like you know and it's, it's come to that point but yeah then we saw and then we also see clear evidence of the way china tries to silence activists so we had recently a couple um Uyghurs who have their family members in camps and they spoke they met up with uh um secretary pompeo to talk about uh, you know what's happening um, to their family members, and a couple of days later, um, they got the news that like their aunt, like one guy, his aunt and his uncle got sentenced to sixty-seven years of prison because of because of simply meeting with the U.S. government, basically. Well, what we will have to do is to continue to look at not just the silence, uh, core silence of uh, of individuals, of academics, but also how the uh, the presence of Chinese, uh, uh, China's economy or its, um, its presence in America's economy mm -hmm. has also impacted um, the silence that, that we see. Because I just read an article recently, it was talking about, matter of fact, this is probably about two years ago, mm -hmm. and it talked about the number of American companies that are now under Chinese ownership. And yeah. some are legitimate, but there are many that are state-owned, right. uh, and that's also having an impact on how people respond to um, uh, to the to this crisis in particular, you know, and offering any kind of criticism towards China. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, definitely. So China is buying people's silence. Um, yeah, and and even Muslim Muslim majority countries up till this point, I would say the only Muslim majority country on a government level that has spoken up is Turkey, and that only happened a couple months ago. But even until that point, mm -hmm. like no one has spoken up. Even like the Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan, mm -hmm. like when asked, he was asked multiple times. Um, well, you say much money. Well, yeah. you know, he was he was basically saying that the issue of the Uyghurs is an internal affair. I don't know much about it. He's like, I don't know much about the issue. I can't really speak on it. It was just, you know, like these these are the excuses that are being made. Mm. Um, Aiden, I appreciate you taking the time to come through. Tell Thank folks you. where they can uh, keep up with you on social media. Uh, yeah, so... Um, you guys can, so I, my Facebook and Twitter is used for raising awareness about this cause. So if you follow me on Twitter, my Twitter is IdenNwar underscore. Uh, that's A-Y-D-I-N-A-N-W-A-R underscore. And then my Facebook is just my first and last name. You can just follow me on Facebook. Um, yeah, so that's, and it's the same spelling, A-Y-D-I-N, last name is A-N-W-A-R. And also go to uh, Save uh, Uyghur. I'm working on my pronunciation. Make sure I get it right. <laughs> save uh, Uyghur.org. Go there, Save uh, Uyghur.org. Uh, and you can get information about um, just about what, what we've been talking about and, uh, and make yourself active. Make yourself active. So thank you once thank again. Thank you so much. All right, Radio Islam family, we're going to take a short break, but we will be back in a moment. This is Radio Islam on WCEV 1450 AM. Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo Jelly Jelly adjective Jelly is a shorter, better way to say jealous As in Chloe, I am like so jelly of your unicorn phone case You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same Visit AdoptUSKids.org Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Adopt US Kids and the Ad Council
Hey everyone, let's all stop what we're doing and take a moment. You see, every moment can be kind of special. But they can be loud moments, goofy moments, dorky moments, it doesn't matter. Because every time dads like us take a moment like that to spend with our kids, well, it's pretty momentous. So let's take a moment to make a moment. Call 877-4DAD411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, and we're streaming at WCEV1450.com. If you haven't already done so, make sure you are following us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA, and also subscribe to the podcast. We are wherever you get your podcast at, Apple Play, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, TuneIn. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. And that, my dear friends, is the rumbling of the elevated train uh, that you hear in the background. We are downtown Chicago. All right. There was recently a um, it's it's all over the news right now, uh, a fire of historic uh, proportions uh, and impact uh, for Catholics around the world. Uh, and and for for those who just appreciate uh, history, you know, in general. And we're talking about the Notre Dame cathedral fire that took place uh, Monday as a matter of fact and I've got in studio joining me to discuss that and how that relates to some other things that you probably aren't hearing about in mainstream media uh, the impressive one Ibrahim Beg uh, Assalamu alaikum alaykum Good to be with you again Always, always uh, And you are folks probably know this by now because they've heard us talk uh, in the past that you are a uh, student of political science, um, right? I've, I've kind of uh, <laughs> like shyly or indirectly referenced that <laughs> many times. <laughs> yeah, and one of the things that I think that we need to take into account as we talk about this uh, this event that has captured uh, the media and the conversation that it exists. There's a political context um, to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the to the reporting, because uh, we know one of the things I think I like to say, or I've said uh, on occasion, is that, uh, and many have said it, that the narrative, the storytelling, it's important because it kind of conveys what we think is important to people. And with this right now, it's gotten, of course, all the headlines. The the you know it's it's big, and they're talking about the relics and the art and uh, that was saved and the response and how long it's going to take to rebuild. Um, and, you know, and all of that. But in the background, what we have not heard much about or anything about in, in mainstream media as far as uh, um, television or news reporting is concerned is the destruction of, a, of, an, of, of an 800-year-old uh, masjid or mosque in China. Right. Um, and this is just as much a loss uh, as the Notre Dame. Uh, well, you know, it's, it's, it's as much of a loss in terms of the history and the amount of time that it's been in existence and serving uh, people as a, as a house of worship. Yeah. But it hasn't been talked about. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I guess we should mention some, some of the facts about the uh, Notre Dame fire. Sure. Um, seems to be, as far as people can tell, like an accidental thing. 
yeah. they're renovating the place and like some of the materials caught fire or something like that and um it was very striking imagery the videos that came out of it there's a spire like a kind of a steeple in the middle of it that like topples over at one point mm-hmm. um structurally since it's a big stone structure it seems to be the case now that um, most of the structure is intact and that was kind of like the wooden roof that was just yeah, erupting it in these flames. Mm-hmm. So that's what was causing that huge uh, inferno. Um, but it looks like it will be okay for the most part. And, of course, millions of dollars are pouring in to uh, reconstruct whatever was lost. Um, so and I'm glad you talked about how this is being framed and the storytelling aspect of it. Because there's definitely some of that going on, too. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, everyone agrees this is a important work of architecture and all that and history. It's like 900 years old or something like that. Yeah. Um, also, out of this are emerging um, kind of mythological, uh, like metaphorical things about France um, going through these tough times of political turmoil and you know that the inferno like symbolizes that and then but oh it's gonna survive and so france will survive and that that kind of thing there it was, it was okay i mean i guess blame someone for turn it into a pick-me-up yeah i mean yeah that's that's a it'd be te- it's, it's tempting it'd be very tempting to you know use that and it'd be tough not to like use that to your advantage if yeah. you're you know yeah, I mean? sure. uh, political minded or whatever and i guess Another reason why people consider this so important is because it's more prominent um, in the media, like over time, the pictures that everyone has seen of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in France, a Western country, in Paris, major and it's a city. It's a huge tourist attraction. Yeah, it's a huge tourist attraction. Probably the biggest tourist attraction there, other than the Eiffel Tower, right? Mm-hmm. Which is only like 150 years old or something like that. Right. So that's kind of, I guess, the original architectural uh, attraction mm-hmm. of Paris um, so yeah what I'm not seeing yet uh, alhamdulillah thank God is this kind of play on like Euro heritage and this is you know that kind of thing I'm sure that's out there but it hasn't really uh, come to the surface yet mm-hmm. um, people are calling it what it is like a, an architectural uh, artifact or an important building and so on sure. that um, housed a lot of other important um, artifacts yeah true and a religious uh, like a religious religiously significant place too because there's because of many artifacts in there mm-hmm. um, you know we don't know how authentic those are or whatever but they were important to people um, as we mentioned it, was, it seems to be like an accident mm-hmm. hopefully um, but what you mentioned about the ancient mosques and other places being torn down, um, we've seen the type of thing. So so it's kind of a different thing from something deliberately being torn down, right? Yeah. Um, ISIS, the terrorist group, a couple of years ago, they started to tear down some of the uh, like ancient temples, ancient, I, don't, I forgot exactly which culture it was from, but one of the ancient, ancient cultures from the Fertile Crescent area mm-hmm. that they're occupying. Uh, the Taliban in the mid 90s, I want to say mid or late 90s, mm-hmm. they uh, blew up a big uh, artifact, a huge statue that was from the time, ancient time when Buddhism was uh, practiced popularly in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. 
both of those incidents caused a big, big uproar. Um, and recently, actually at the same time, this is all going on. And right now, while this is happening in France, the fire that damaged the church, uh, Notre Dame, mm-hmm. um, like you mentioned, these ancient mosques are being deliberately demolished by the Chinese government in their broader campaign to oppress and subjugate the the minority Muslim population of the northwest region of uh, what's controlled by China. Mm-hmm. Of course, the people of that region hate being called part of Xinjiang, which is the the new territory. Yeah, the new territory. That's what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, they re- want to refer to it as East Turkestan because they have a distinct culture and ancient culture. Right. So the question is, which you kind of put forth already, why are these incidents of ancient mosques being demolished? And I've seen a couple of pictures of them. They're beautiful. They're, they're not, it's not like a you know, haphazard structure or something like that. It's a very beautiful, mm-hmm. very solid uh, construction. Yeah. Couldn't last 800 years. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> it did. So it has a good track record of yeah. you know, standing up to the environment and everything. Um, like the, like you said, why are we not seeing that kind of uh, condemnation or even the level of sorrow or, or alarm mm-hmm. that we would see from something like Notre Dame going up in flames? You know what? I would have to first go back to the point that this one was an accident and the other is deliberate. Yeah. But in either either case, it still leaves people who look to um, look to the edifice as a house of, uh, of, of spiritual renewal, uh, they find some spiritual value in it, right? As Yeah, not only that, but just even someone ha- uh, is a non-believer, something that's historically significant and worthy of being preserved, you know, yeah. something that we would feel some sadness to see it be destroyed in, in whatever form, even if it's a natural disaster or something like that. Right, right. but there has been an outpouring, and uh, as far as support and, I guess, condolences, for those who have a spiritual connection to this to the space mm-hmm. and 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 that's proper to do so and and of course you know I, we, we feel bad for for all those who you know who are grieving in that regard but um fortunately you know most of the uh cathedral is still you know is still standing they were able to uh extinguish the fire and i think they're watching it and uh, hoping that no embers, you know, kick up and they have to, you know, go back in. Mm-hmm. But in the case of the the mosques in uh, in China, we're looking at there's there's a detachment number one in coverage, uh, and then there's also an absence of, I believe, kind of a, a solidarity and a sense of uh, of what this space meant to those who looked at it as their, you know, as as their mosque. Um, yeah. You know that I guess troubling is probably not the the right word to say, but it's just it's an observation that it's disappointing. It's just not th- yes, yeah, it is. It is. I mean, I would expect to see that same kind of shock or sorrow. Like I said, from seeing such a structure being destroyed through any means, even through a natural disaster or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, just like we see uh, the same reaction from the church in Notre Dame mm-hmm. as being destroyed through an accidental fire or whatever. But there's a sense of like, oh no, this it, it's too bad that such a, uh, a, a you know a historical building had to get damaged. But I don't get that same feeling from seeing these that people are getting that same feeling from seeing these mosques be uh, demolished. 
Well, one of the things that we are dealing with, we are dealing with um, the, the promotion of Islamophobia, um, number one, an anti-Muslim bias uh, that is prevalent in parts of the media uh, to, to varying degrees. And then also yeah, having... We don't want to change the subject, but we know what's going on <laughs> here in our country yeah, yeah, right abso- now. Absolutely. With the president and everything. Yeah. So you, you have to think that that will color people's response who see, who see um, something like this happening at the uh, cathedral. The first, the first thought for some would be, this is a terrorist or was it terrorism, right? So, so they <laughs> yeah. had to come out immediately. Yeah, some people did try to imply that before the details started coming uh, coming out and getting more confirmed, I guess. Mm-hmm. I guess they're still investigating, but it's pretty much agreed upon that it was some type of an accident yeah. uh, for now. And do you think it sort of positions Muslims in a way that they can only be the aggressor and never... Um, you know, never the oppressed, and in, in you know, in a sense of, if your place, if there's any damage that, that is sustained, then, mm-hmm. yeah, you probably had it coming, but not to, you know, where their sympathy is, is is withheld. Yeah, it's a broader problem in media coverage and, and um, the Islamophobia in general. Yeah, which does exist, by the way. There's people who. There's, there's, mo- there's movements out there that's you know try to convince people no there's no such thing as Islamophobia and so on. Yeah. Um, that's a sh- different show in and of itself. Yeah. Def- defining it and, and kind of outlining where it started it started right here in our country, by the way. Mm-hmm. But that model is being used and duplicated through uh, other countries, other regimes that have their own agendas. Quite well. Yeah. And what we're seeing in China is is actually um, well, it didn't begin with uh, with the U.S. But we see it also functioning and uh, Islamophobia in a in a completely different um, uh, on a complete on a completely different level. Uh, and you know, we spoke with uh, Aida Anwar, and she talked about the concentration camps and um, just all of these different horrors that are existing uh, that Muslims and also, I guess, quote unquote, ethnic minorities um, in China are being subject uh, subjected to. So. Yeah, Islamophobia, it exists, or anti-Muslim bias, or um, whatever you want to call it, uh, it exists. And I think just the coverage that we're seeing right now is is kind of a representation or reminder, you know, that it exists. I would, yeah, I would interpret the actual demolish, uh, demolition of the mosques mm-hmm. as, of course, Islamophobia and, you know, uh, like a authoritarian or totalitarian agenda and all that. Um, but as far as why are people across the world not reacting the same way, I interpret that as, I mean, I wouldn't call it Islamophobia, but I would call it a, like, we have a long way to go, you know, in, in convincing people that, yes, we as Muslims and our uh, holy places and our lives and the things that we hold important, it, it really is something worthy of, of being on par with, you know, European culture and, and their artifacts and their lifestyle or, or whatever. Like, we are worthy to to deserve the same type of uh, sentiments that other people get, you know? Yeah. I think it comes down just to just being seen as, as a human being. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, we've thrown it out there, but we, <laughs> but we, don't, have, we don't have enough we, time to really keep going. <laughs> 
So yeah, we'll pick so, it up. We'll yeah, pick it up, we'll have to. Inshallah. All right, brother. Appreciate you. Thanks for having me. All right, Radio Sound family. We have come to the end of our program. Thanks for tuning in. Remember to follow us on uh, on social media and to subscribe to the podcast. We'd like to thank our engineers over at WCEV for making sure we come through loud and clear. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Alamine. Our executive producer is Abdul Mujahid. We remind you that the views expressed by the host and our guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. And with that, we leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Thank you.